Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello and welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm going to be chatting to Dr. Anne Margaret Smith, and she is the creator of the ELT Well website, which brings together the best practice from the fields of English language teaching and specialist support for neurodivergent learners. Dr. Anne Margaret has taught English for 30 years and is a dyslexia specialist tutor and assessor, and now offers materials and training to teachers. Now, just before this insightful conversation, here's a quick thank you to our sponsor. I'd like to thank the National Association for Primary Education for their continued support and sponsorship of the Education on Fire podcast. In March, they have a brand new conference which is online called Towards the Balanced and Broadly Based Curriculum. Now, the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on children's education may be perceived as a justification for narrowing the curriculum at the expense of the arts and the humanities. But this conference will explore the case for preserving young children's entitlement to as rich and diverse a curriculum as possible. Dr. Yude's keynote lecture will set the scene, highlighting some key issues and considering some lessons to be learnt from the period of lockdown. The subsequent presentations will focus on classroom practice, providing a spotlight on innovations which have been implemented in school and offering guidance for the future. Now, to find out more about this conference, please go to nape.org.uk forward slash conference. That's nape.org.uk forward slash conference. Hello and welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Dr. Anne Margaret Smith, thank you so much for joining me. We're going to be talking about English language teaching. We're also going to be talking about music and that relationship between the two. And of course, as a musician myself, this is a a really interesting but really important conversation, I think, as we start to sort of understand this relationship and also as the arts are often reduced a little bit in schools and that at the moment, to sort of understand how really important that can be, I think it's going to be really important for everyone listening. So thank you very much for being here today. It's an absolute pleasure. So why don't we start by talking about ELT Well and exactly what it is as an organisation or as a company and, and we can go from there. Yeah, sure. So ELT Well is my company. I set it up in 2005 because as an English language teacher uh, and a dyslexia assessor, I could see that there was a lot of good practice to be shared from these two separate fields, which never seemed to communicate with each other. So ELT Well was my way of um, setting up a vehicle, really, where we could share good practice. And um, it's been going for 15 years, as I say. And we support teachers who are working either with multilingual learners or neurodivergent learners, and particularly multilingual neurodivergent learners, uh, both with identifying what issues they might have, what their barriers are, and also how best to support them in their learning. And in terms of your background and your expertise, is that sort of multilingual come from just working within diversity here in the UK, or has it been working abroad? So I started my career as an English language teacher um, about 30 years ago now, which is a bit terrifying when I think about (laughs) it, but it's true. Uh, I was teaching in Kenya as a student, and then after I qualified, I went to teach in Germany, Sweden. Um, I came back to Britain to do a bit more study, and that's when I got interested in dyslexia and uh, became a dyslexia assessor and a specialist tutor. Um, So yeah, so I've worked in several different countries. And um, although I'm, I'm based here in the UK now, 
I do still work across across Europe, but there's there's a lot of English language teaching going on in in all countries because English is such an important global language, and everywhere there are people who are learning in a different way. So yeah, it's really it's a global issue. And dyslexia is something that we've covered recently on the podcast as well, and. It's really interesting for me, the concept of this kind of personalised learning, which when we feel that there are students that need extra support or understanding, this sort of specialist sort of understanding and learning sort of comes together. And I guess, especially if you're doing language, English as a, as a foreign language, or like I say, or maybe not the first language, that becomes even more important. So can you give us sort of a few examples about how that's, how that's worked in your experience? So, well, in the UK... Um students who are using English as an additional language, uh, I mean, they're really up against it, no matter how long they've been in the country, and some of them are very newly arrived and come from quite difficult backgrounds. Um, they've got additional challenges in the classroom because there's so much, not just linguistic knowledge uh, assumed, but quite a lot of cultural knowledge assumed as well. So that's a barrier right there. And I think most teachers are aware that if their students are using English as an additional language, they're going to need to keep an eye on them and, and try and find what works for them. But what I think teachers are not always aware of is that students who are using English as an additional language might also be neurodivergent. So there may be an underlying cognitive difference, dyslexia or dyspraxia, what have you, um, which has never been identified. And it may be making it even more difficult for them to develop the English language skills that they need in order to access the rest of the curriculum. So, and this was a situation I was in um, when I was teaching English in a, an FE college, teaching ESOL. And I realised that uh, I had quite a few students who had been in the beginners class for about five years. <laughs> and I just realised that whatever we'd been doing, it wasn't working for them. So I, um, I wanted to find out what their strengths were and how they worked best and also what they found most challenging. So in the end, I, I put together an assessment tool which is uh, it's called the Cognitive Assessments for Multilingual Learners. And it's designed to explore how multilingual learners work without taking the English language out of the situation. So we're not giving them a spelling test in English and then looking and saying, oh, gosh, you must be dyslexic because you can't spell. It's, it's looking to see what they can do when they're not using English, what their memory is like, what their speed of processing is like. Uh, and when we know more about our learners generally, and I don't just mean their, their cognitive function, but when we know more about them, what experiences they've had, what education they've had, we're in a much better position to support them and to, to find ways that they will be able to learn most effectively. And so talk us a little bit about how you go about doing that in terms of supporting teachers um, and schools, because I, I would imagine it's something which is a really important and serious problem and something which many many people come across in this country and it's not necessarily something which is talked about in the same way as as you hear other kind of um, special needs conversations. Mm. No that's right and I think um, <laughs> quite often I get called into schools because there's a, a disagreement the the SENCO um, will say that the student is you know just needing to learn more English and then they'll be fine and the EAL coordinator is saying, yeah, but they're not learning the way the rest of the EAL learners are. And so we need to look deeper. So there's sometimes a bit of, you know, disagreement, professional disagreement about what the cause of the difficulties could be. And so 
I sometimes get called into schools almost to sort of arbitrate. <laughs> um, and uh, so I take my assessment tool and I show teachers how to use the assessment tool so that they don't have to keep calling me in. They can do it themselves. So you don't have to be a qualified dyslexia assessor to do a screening. Um, although, you, obviously, if you're going to make a formal identification, you would need the qualification. Um, so, yeah, so I, I show teachers what they can do. Quite simple things, really. It's not rocket science. Um, and then they, they're often then happy to, to take it on. And if they need to screen other students, they will. And there's also an online course now, because this year I haven't been able to get into schools, obviously. Um, so I've put the materials online, the courses online, so teachers can access it that way if they want to. And that's proving to be quite popular, actually, because teachers then can do it in their own time. Yeah, and I think that's been one of the real positives, hasn't it, about everybody just suddenly feeling more comfortable online and knowing that that's the case and, and yeah. making the, the very best of a, of a situation, obviously, which is, has been very impactful in so many different ways. But I think, like you say, it means that you can't go in and give that necessarily that one-to-one conversation but you can do the one-to-many now and I guess having things like webinars and presentations and that kind of thing you get the best of both worlds and like I say teachers are so busy to be able to use this mm. as and when they've got the time must be a really positive thing yeah I think it is I think I think teachers have really appreciated that that because um, I used to run courses you know or I'd go into schools and, and train a whole team or they'd get their neighboring schools to send their senkos as well you know and we do group training and obviously that hasn't been possible but actually it's much more cost effective and time time efficient to do uh, an online course and, uh, and like you say i think a lot of teachers are discovering that actually they're much tech savvier than they used to be um and for those teachers um that haven't done an online course before in in that way can you just sort of of in a very sort of simple terms explain how that works you know it's not necessarily you know i'm not going to go away and take an hour a week for 12 weeks or anything like that sort of explains sort of the practicalities of of how that works for anyone who's not had the opportunity to do such a thing yet Mm. well i mean online courses come in all shapes and sizes um the ones that i'm offering at the moment there's one which is um eight short sessions of 10 minutes each that's the uh, using music musical activities and language learning um there's the uh, assessing multilinguals course which is um i'm just trying to get this straight now it's five sessions which each take about an hour to an hour and a half so it's it's like five to seven hours um spread out however the participant wants to do it and i'm working now on an online course which is going to be a bit more substantial it's going to be 10 weeks and each week will be about an hour and a half to two hours which is about understanding neurodiversity as well as supporting neurodiverse learners because obviously once you've identified where the barriers are that's great that's the first step but then you've also got to think about what's the best way to support that learner and and I think it's great to hear, like you say, the the range that online courses can be. You know, I say ten minutes here and there, as and as opposed to an hour or two, which of course, depending on what it is that you're needing to learn and how you can do it. But I think the fact the technology is there now that you can you can learn these things, you can save it, you go back to where you were. It's all there, packaged in such a way that it's it's so user friendly, isn't it? It is. It's quite intuitive. Um, and as I say, we've we've all been living online a lot more this year, so think people are more used to it but the way we've set up the courses it sort of leads you through step by step you know read this text watch this video 
do this little activity, now write your reflection, you know, so it leads you through step by step. And um, there's no sort of big formal assessments or assignments to worry about. It is just uh, reflection. And um, in, in the Assessing Multilingual Learners course, there's um, a case study. So the participants are asked to look at the case study and apply what they've learned to show, you know, their understanding of, of the course. And um, I think it, it's, um, it's very user friendly. It's not daunting. And of course, I'm around if anybody has any questions. I'm very happy to to chat through because it's my favorite subject. So why wouldn't I want to sit and chat about it? Absolutely. And and I, and I think this um this divergence of the fact that it used to be that sort of online courses were sort of standalone and you did it yourself and like I say they're very intuitive and they work through but I think the other positive thing of actually us all being online this year is the fact that the, the going hand to hand with here's the resource that you can work through in that way. But we've also got the ability to have face to face um, sessions online and, and these question and answer and all of those things. I think mm. the fact that you have those two together, which is becoming much more of how people seem to want to work, means that you do get the best of both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The whole blended learning approach. You know, and people can can have as much contact with the tutor or with other participants as they want. Um, I've recently actually just finished a future learn course myself, and I could see that some of the participants were spending quite a lot of time in the discussion room, which was great. But I I didn't have time to spend a lot of time myself. But it was it was lovely to see that there was a kind of community building there. Absolutely. And I know a lot of the things I've been involved in there, there's a time and a place for it, isn't there? There's, mm. you have a moment where you come up against the situation or something that you've not quite got your head around, which needs that extra support and other times that you don't. And especially because they're, you know, you can often come back to it as and when you need these things, then you just have everything as and when you need it. I think that's the most important thing rather than thinking, oh, right now we need to make sure that we get some CPD of this. Let's plan it for next year. And of course, in the yeah, meantime, yeah. you've got people that are needing the support straight away. No, that's right. And and the other thing is that um, with being online, it's much easier to find the CPD that you need when you need it. And the, or the courses that I'm running are all um, on demand. So you don't have to wait until the start date. You just You just enroll and you work at your own pace. Um, but the thing is, if some if a teacher comes up against that issue where they have uh, a multilingual learner who doesn't seem to be making progress and they want to find out more, um, they don't need to reinvent the wheel. You know, some people have gone ahead and, and looked at that issue. And it's true of all issues that we come across in teaching. There's really nothing new. Somebody will have explored it and found a solution. And, you know, that's what that's what ELT Well is there for, really, to share these solutions in that particular context yeah and in this modern world that connectivity is just it is such a wonderful thing isn't it in a way that we were never able to explore before yeah absolutely and uh, um tell us a little bit about lexplore it's something that we've covered before but in terms of your sort of specialism and that real kind of niche of of, of skills that you need have you found that even even more supportive mm. so um i don't know how much you know about lexplore it's um program for diagnosing or identifying issues in reading early on. So if you've got students who um, don't seem to be making progress in reading, there's a, a quite a short little test you can do and it, it works on eye movement tracking. So it's, it's really high tech, but it's easy for teachers to use. And uh, basically the teacher can have a look at the 
the way that the student's eyes are tracking across the page, see where they stop, how long they stop for, how often they go backwards and forwards. And from that, they can determine, you know, what their um, reading efficiency is like. And they can even see what particular uh, issues they have in terms of the orthography, you know, the letter combinations. So, it, yeah, it is a useful tool um, as part of a wide toolkit, I would say. Um, it, it's one way of checking students' reading from, a, yeah, from that sort of eye-tracking mechanical point of view, if you like. It does have a little bit of reading comprehension in it, but it's not a full reading comprehension test. Uh, and, of course, reading is much more than just decoding. It is also understanding, uh, interpreting yeah, as well. and and I guess the, the the biggest takeaway from that, from from what I've heard you saying, is the fact that when you have children in whatever scenario that happens to be in your school or, or or your place of learning, when you're trying to support them and you're trying to find out if there's a problem or you're trying to find out their strengths or you're just trying to sort of get as much information as possible, any of these things which can actually help you either confirm or dismiss something is going to help you get. Um, nearer I guess what the truth is or, or much more understanding of that particular student and then from there it's all going to be a, hopefully a positive um, outcome as much as it possibly can be. Yeah no absolutely and um, you talk about ruling things out I think one of the most important things that we can do coming back to what I was saying about getting to know learners is to find out about their background because so many barriers to learning are actually um, things that we could resolve fairly easily. I have a student at the moment, for example, who has just got a pair of glasses. And she, you know, for ages she was really struggling. And then she got some glasses. It's like, oh, you know, everything's fine now. <laughs> so it could be that we just need to check, have they had their hearing tested? Have they had their eyesight? Are there any underlying health issues? Is there anything going on in the family that could be causing stress? Um, because when people get stressed, you know, we don't sleep. And then when we don't sleep, we don't remember and we you know it starts to snowball and it could look like it could look like a specific learning difference um, when it could actually just be uh, I say just it could be a social emotional issue yeah. rather than a cognitive difference so you're absolutely right you've got to know as much as possible about the learner and try and rule out any other difficulty before we decide that it could be you know dyslexia or, or you know another SBLD yeah and the glasses um comment is really struck home with me because uh, when I was teaching uh, a pupil recently for my drum and percussion lessons one of the questions I asked was can you actually see this and was specific about what I was asking and they said oh no it's really hard without my glasses and they've never come to a music lesson with their glasses and I uh. thought and um and they did so well and in so many different ways and they seemed to remember things so well and I wouldn't have known apart from yeah. this one little situation that turned up and then that led on to that question and like you say like in, until you know these things you, you don't know what you don't know and so even yeah. the, the simplest of questions can have a, a really big result absolutely yeah and sometimes like the questions that I ask when I first uh, am working with a student when I'm you know assessing them or evaluating them um, some of the questions seem really strange and they don't really know why I'm asking like I'll ask them um, can you ride a bike or um, do you play ball games? And then I will, what's that got to do with learning English? But actually everything is connected. And if the student has trouble with coordination, balance, you know, that could also indicate some issues, um, cognitive differences, which could be affecting their speed of processing, their, um, the timing, the rhythm, which is all really important 
in language learning. So some of these questions that we ask seem a bit kind of, um, yeah, a bit out of the ballpark, but yeah, they all have a purpose. Yeah, and I think the sort of taking the sort of the, that kind of ask the right questions or ask smart questions, it's, you know, ask the question, whatever that happens to be, which comes to comes to mind when, when you're really investigating these things. And then you can say you can, all manner of things can, can come to the fore, which you weren't expecting. Um, can you take us... Can you take us into your your music course a little bit more? Because, like I said, is is that something I'm also very interested in? And tell mm. us the relationship that you that you discover and you explore through that, and exactly how that works. Well, there has for quite a long time um, been a, a growing body of research looking at the relationship between um, rhythm and language development, particularly in context of working with dyslexic learners. In fact, the British Dyslexia Association actually have a music committee. It, you know, it's that well established, the fact that music and, and language learning, literacy development are interconnected. And there's been quite a lot of research into the, uh, obviously the spelling difficulties that many dyslexic learners experience and how that's connected to phonological processing. And some of the research indicates that the phonological processing is to do with the timing of the processing. So some dyslexic students, when they're processing sound, it's it's not quite in sync. The waves are not quite in sync. And so they're not processing it the same way that everybody else is processing the sound. So when they try and um, represent those sounds in spelling, it, it doesn't quite doesn't quite work. Um, Sometimes they get the sounds in the wrong order, the letters in the wrong order, or sometimes they just get the wrong sound and the wrong, therefore the wrong letter. So there's been quite a lot of research about that. And um, a lot of sort of practical research looking at how developing better rhythm can help dyslexic learners, which has been quite positive as well, particularly drumming, you might be interested to know. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, doing drumming activities uh, has been shown to help dyslexic learners develop that sense of rhythm that they need. What I've also observed working with autistic learners is that their sense of pitch, so dyslexic learners have this, this difficulty with the, the rhythm, the timing of the language, but autistic um, learners often have more difficulty with the pitch change. I don't know if you know any autistic people, but I noticed it when my nephew was very young and he spoke on a monotone like this, you know, without without the sort of rhythm, without putting the stresses on the individual syllables that he needed to, and without varying the pitch very much. And so I read more about that, and I found that that is indeed quite common, that autistic people um, don't have that same sense of pitch. Not all, obviously. I mean, we can't overgeneralize, but it does seem to be more common. Um so I started thinking, how can I support my learners? Oh, and the other thing was, some of my neurodivergent learners, they'd come to me and we'd work one-to-one. -one, and although we were sitting in quite a small room, just the two of us, they still only had one volume. <laughs> and so by the end of the session, I'd be feeling like I just needed to lie down in a dark room somewhere because I'd had this sort of blast of volume at me for the whole hour. And they didn't seem to be aware of their volume or indeed their tempo and what kind of... Um, impact that had on on the message that they were putting across, which is really, really important. You know, if you say something very loud and very quick, you have this sense of urgency, whereas if you speak slowly and quietly, 
it gives a very, very different impression. And my learners just didn't seem to be aware of this at all. So I started looking to see how I could help them to develop this awareness of pitch, rhythm, tempo, volume, and so on. And um, fortuitously, I bumped into an old friend of mine who's now a community musician, Matthew Evans. And I overheard a conversation he was having with somebody else about the elements of music. And I realized that the elements of music are the elements of phonology. And so I um, persuaded him to help me put together some activities which take like one element of music, like, like volume, for example, and isolate it and work on it so that the students become aware of different volumes. And then they can start to feed that back into their, their language. And the same with pitch change, uh, same with tempo, working on rhythm. Um, so though it's quite sort of um, intense, I suppose, because you're just taking one element at a time, working on that and then building that back into your language. But music's got so many benefits for language learners, um, not just the sort of, you know, the technical, the, the phonological aspects of it, but uh, memory, for example, a lot of my neurodivergent learners really struggle to remember information but they're quite good at remembering songs <laughs> so we would take a tune that they know a tune that they like and and get them to put the new information or the new words to the tune that they know and then they sing that and that really helps them to remember and what i really like about that is the fact that when you understand these things and you incorporate them in in your teaching and, and your learning it's something which actually benefits everybody. <laughs> it's not like it needs to be separated out. We're going to do this for this group of people because this is what they need and this is what another group of people need. Actually, you can combine the whole thing and it has benefits and it may have different levels of benefits, like you say, because it's not a one-size-fits-all because everybody is different and we're back to that sort of personalised learning again. But everyone also takes out what they need from any given activity. And I, I love that kind of feeling of community that you've just described. No, I mean, and one of the other benefits of music is that, um, sure, there are some people who are naturally musically talented. Uh, unfortunately, my friend Matthew is, <laughs> because I'm not. <laughs> and so I really needed his expertise and his input. Um, and in any class, you're going to get some people for whom that is their strength. And they may not have any other way of shining. You know, they may not be academically gifted. But when we start doing musical activities, they get it and they can shine. Um, and it's quite good for the students who are academically gifted and not very musical to feel what it's like to be on the back foot. But the other thing is that because, as, as you say, we do it with the whole group, so it requires quite a lot of teamwork, quite a lot of collaborative learning. Um, you know, so if, if you give the students some words, some new words that they need to learn and they have to put it to a famous student, like we sometimes use happy birthday or you know, any, anything that they want to use. They've got to really think about uh, how many syllables in the words, where the stresses are, you know, how they're going to fit into the tune. So they need to discuss it quite a lot and they need to work together and agree. So there's a lot of teamwork going on and it builds relationships um, in a way that I, I think is quite unique to art-based teaching, you know, drama, art, music, they're all a great way of helping people to show what they can do and helping the people who are normally really good at language learning to, to feel what it's like, you know, when you've got a bit more of a challenge 
but to learn to trust each other as well and to um, to value each other. So, so many benefits of using music. I, I don't know why more teachers don't do it, quite frankly. <laughs> well, I, I, I think this is why it's so important to have these conversations because it, you know, as we're going through this, it sounds like a no-brainer, <laughs> like yes, you say. Exactly. Why, why would you not? Um, and and I think there are some there are some people who haven't had much experience of music, or certainly teaching music, um, and so they feel slightly scared of it. And that only gets worse the less it goes on in schools. Um, and and so there's that element to it, which I think, like you say, when you have a course like you've got, and you can explain it and show it, and they understand. The most important thing I ever got across when I've been doing workshops in schools is the fact that you're already a teacher. You already understand the pupils in your class. You understand how to communicate. Mm. This is just one small element, and we can show you what that is in terms of, like I say, whether it's pitch or rhythm or whatever games and exercises and, and, and learning materials that you're going to use. So I think that's one of the things. And I think the other thing that struck me is the fact that you've also – explains so many positive things from a purely sort of linguistical point of view in terms of supporting children to improve their English in whatever level that happens to be and from a government point of view that's something they're very keen on and so I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm always interested to find out sort of why there isn't more investment in music in that cross-curricular idea because it even if your starting point is we want to improve literacy music does that in a way that just not only helps that but all those other things that you've explained as well but I, I still find that's quite a difficult conversation to try and convince some people that could make that more of a reality yeah but coming back to your point about teachers perhaps being a little bit afraid of you know if they're not musicians um I would just reassure them that we recognize that not all teachers are musicians um but we've packaged the activities up in such a way that you can very very easily bring it into your classroom and all the all the soundtracks and everything are provided you don't have to start you know composing or you don't even have to sing um which is fortunate in my case <laughs> so you know everything is there for you you just have to set up the activity and press the button and let the students get on with it um and coming back to why it's i think music has actually disappeared from the curriculum since i was at school and I think it's it's to do with who's in charge, and it's the neurotypical people who succeed in academia, who then get into positions of authority in the education system. And they don't they don't really see the point of it. Why why would you need to learn in a different way? So if we had more neurodivergent people in in positions of authority in the education system, I think perhaps we would see more arts based teaching. I think that's really true. I think it's a really great point. And in terms of the the current climate of diversity across the board, in whichever way that happens to be, then um, then maybe that's uh, then maybe that's a, a path that's worth um, treading and, and exploiting and, and having a conversation about more and more and more. Um, so, as as we just finish off, tell people where they can go and visit to to get your courses, to find out more about you, and and um, and just you know get even more of this wealth of opportunity, which I think is really going to help so many people. Sure. So the website is www.eltwell.com. And from eltwell.com, you'll find links to the resources. You'll find um, the music there, language learning and musical activities, LAMA, as we call it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you'll find the cognitive assessments for multilingual learners, which, of course, is a camel. And you'll find links also to um, comics, like Deco Comics, which is another great 
visual resource for reluctant readers. Um, and there's all the, on, the links to the online courses are all on that website as well. And of course, you can contact me through the website too. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Anne Margaret, thank you so much for being here. And and I feel really excited when I have these conversations about the fact that I can almost hear people who have been struggling within schools, who are wanting to support people in so many ways, who who aren't quite sure where to go. And I think now we can share this information, share people like yourself who can really help in such a an easy way, having these online courses and, and these platforms. It's just going to help so many pupils and so many students to, to thrive in, in their life, whatever their situation. So thank you so much for sharing that and for being here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. As you can probably tell, this is my favourite subject. <laughs> so I'm always really happy to have the chance to, to talk about it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.